Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Let's Talk Low Vision. This is brought to you by the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. And my name is Dr. Bill Takeshta, and I am the chief of low vision at the Center for the Partially Sighted in Los Angeles and the Braille Institute of America, also in Los Angeles. And this evening, we're very, very privileged to have one of the experts in the area of education, and he is often voted the best teacher of the year at his school. And we have uh, Mr. Keith Christian from Anaheim, California. Welcome to the show, Keith. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Bill. Yes, nice to have you. I think the last time that we had you on the show, you were telling us how to date with low vision. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, that was an interesting conversation, wasn't it? Yeah, well, tonight it's a little bit of a different topic, and it's back to school. And one of the things that we really want a lot of our listeners to know about are some of the things that they really should be prepared for as they return to school. And we thought that it would be great if you could answer some questions there for us. Sure. Well, the first thing I think that I'd like to ask you, uh, Mr. Christian, is what do you think is the most commonly misunderstood uh, topic or conception uh, among parents as they bring their child with low vision to school? Do you find that there are certain types of uh, misconceptions or misunderstandings that parents don't really quite understand when they bring a child to a public school? Sure. Um, I think probably the biggest misunderstanding is that it's our job really to teach the kids the tools that they need to be successful in the regular classroom. And uh, I think one of our biggest jobs is really to teach them how to be uh, advocates for themselves and how that can be supported at home as well as uh, in the classroom. I think uh, it's 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 a bit of a challenge depending on the age of the child, you know, whether it's elementary school, junior high or high school, or even college. But uh, it, it starts early on, and it, it has a lot to do with the expectations that we place on kids in the classroom and how we want them to perform like everybody else and how the parents can really follow up with those sorts of things at home. Well, I know that at our clinic, we very often will see very young children, children that are younger than three years of age, and these are children who are diagnosed with a vision problem. It might be a vision problem such as retinitis pigmentosa or aniridia, or, you know, more frequently it's neurological vision impairment. And many of these children will begin to receive services from the school district even when they're six months old. Now, what happens during this time, we see that many of the teachers and the early intervention staff from the school They work with the children. They even work alongside of us doctors, and we perform visual stimulation to help promote the development of vision. But as these kids get to be a little bit older, I find that parents are still asking for the teachers to help their children's vision to get better. And can you comment about that? Yes. Um, you know, it's, it's really sad when, uh, when parents are, you know, hopeful that, that their, their child's vision will improve. And unfortunately, sometimes we have to um, deal with reality. And as they get older, their vision does, uh, in many situations, get worse. And sometimes it's really difficult because I feel like we're, we're, we're squashing their, their hopes and dreams for the child to be, excuse me, whole or, or normal. But it's, it's really important for us to really teach 
the parents and the kids how to be the best that they can be and really learn how to deal with the vision that they have and really learn how to accommodate for themselves and become advocates and really learn how to uh, use, this, use what remaining visual, vision they have the best that they can. And I think that's a really important point because, again, many times we see parents, and it's very understandable, but they want the teachers to patch the eye of their child. They want the teacher to use the light box and perform other types of vision therapy. And we explain to them as doctors that these particular types of tasks that they are asking the school to do are really medically-oriented tasks. In other words, these are things that a licensed doctor is supposed to do, whereas when the child's at school, they're really there to learn. That's correct. Now, what are some of the first types of uh, things that parents need to do? Let's say that you do have a child who is visually impaired. This might be a child who's four years old, or maybe it's a child who is eight years old and has never attended a public school. How do they get the ball rolling? Well, uh, I think really knowing your resources as a parent, going to the school, talking to uh, the, uh, the, getting in touch with the VI staff before, you know, school begins, obviously, getting a plan, knowing what, you know, getting to know that VI teacher and um, really getting a good idea by talking with that, you're, you're forming a team is what you're doing. You're going to have orient, possibly orientation mobility, VI teacher, and really talk about, you know, what are the expectations of the child and, and how each, each year they're going to progress. And, and you can talk about what, what they're doing at home and what they expect for the child to uh, accomplish in each of, like, in one year, five-year increments to kind of lay out a roadmap to really get a, a realistic picture of what, you know, kids are expected to be able to perform based on, you know, uh, their experiences and getting to know the parent and the child. So what parents probably should do is they probably should bring a letter or some type of a a document from the child's eye doctor and maybe take it first to the school nurse. And from there, the school nurse might be able to help to set up a meeting with some of the staff. Is that what usually would happen? Absolutely, yes. Now, who are the, some of the different members of the team? Maybe you could describe them a bit more. I know that you are a teacher for the visually impaired. And does that mean that you only teach children with vision impairment? Uh, no. Um, what, what that means is that I, I am I basically in the case carrier, so I'm responsible for uh, when the my, my my teaching assignment is on a specific school campus. I'm not an itinerant teacher. I have a classroom on a regular ed campus, and uh, my responsibilities are when the kids get off the bus till they get on the bus that I, I make sure that they're uh, uh, safe and that their you know their academic needs are being met. But as far as that team goes, there's a mobility specialist who works on orientation and mobility, safely traveling the campus, learning you know on campus travel, off campus travel, things like that. But we also have an administration who's very integral to uh, to the the whole process, which would include the school psychologist who works with like social skills, and uh, maybe if there's some issues that have to deal with behaviors or or um, integration uh, concerns that pop up, but also the principal, and uh, it's really from the principal on down in my school because principal sets the tone for 
the expectation of our kids. And um, if they have high expectations for our low vision or blind students, then it trickles down to the teachers, down to the uh, even the noon yard supervisors. So everybody really plays a part in it, but it's, it's really the principal, the psychologist, orientation mobility, and, you know, in junior high, high school, you have the counselors and, and, and others as well. So once a child is uh, enrolled in that public school and the doctor or somebody verifies that the child has a vision impairment, does that then mean that this child automatically qualifies for the special education program because of their vision problem? Yeah, if, in, if a child has, uh, is le- considered legally blind, 2200 vision or or uh, worse with best correction, or has a narrow uh, a visual field of 20 degrees or less, they do qualify for VI services as well as other special ed services that uh, may come along with those that program. Now, what about another child? I mean, I have children, students, where their vision is 2050 and their peripheral vision is not that constricted, but they still do have some vision problems. What, what happens to these kids? Do the parents have to petition or go to a hearing to try to get their child services? Well, they would, they would, they would make their concerns known, and, and there would be a request for assessments. And, and really what would happen is, is the, uh, the teacher of the blind and vision impaired would do an assessment and determine whether the, the child would qualify for services. And it may not be a, you know, a, a situation where the child is legally blind but does require some accommodations and modifications. And those modifications might be, you know, uh, maybe uh, easily accomplished with maybe a 504 plan, which is it's not really a, it's not an, I, an individualized, individualized education plan per se, but it's, um, it's a tool that can be used to uh, make accommodations for kids that don't qualify for an IEP. Okay, so it could be really two tracks. It could be a 504 plan or the IEP. Uh, let's talk first about the IEP. Uh, what does that mean? And this is, again, for children who are, again, classified as being special ed? Yes, it is. Uh, students who qualify for special ed do have an IEP, an individualized education program. And this program is... Um, it, it looks at uh, a student's progress over the year. So every year we have an annual IEP, and at that meeting we would we would uh, we would uh, discuss students' pr- uh, present levels of performance, where they at in language arts, math, uh, uh, reading, writing, and um, uh, mobility. So it's whatever the other services that are uh, recommended that he have goals for in his IEP. So we talk about his present levels, where he's at now. And then we'd set goals for the for the following year, and we have incremental goals um, that lead up to an annual goal. So every three months, when we have report cards, we also do progress reports that uh, indicate the status or the the progress towards those IEP goals or benchmarks that lead to an annual goal. And then, so you have present levels. Then you have the setting of IEP goals. And then when you when you when you uh, start the meeting out after that first year, then you review the, the goals that you set the year before. Now, what happens if there's a situation, like, for example, today I had a parent who came into our office and they were just very, very upset with the school. This is a young man who suffered from a brain injury at birth, 
but he's he's quite functional. He, if you speak to him, he speaks very normally. Uh, he is legally blind. His vision is 2200 when he looks far. When he looks close, he can only read print. That's about 60 point if you print it out on your computer. And the parents said that through all of these years, they have never been introduced to any of the special technologies such as computers that could magnify the text or video magnifiers and such. And when they came to our center, they saw all this equipment, and they were just very, very excited, but they were also very angry because they said, how could this be? Our son is in special ed, has an IEP, and at no time have any of these things ever been discussed. Um, what, what are some of the rights of the parents when they have a disagreement? Uh, let's say that the teacher says, no, he can't use this equipment because his uh, hands don't work well enough. Or uh, what, what are some of the rights that the parents have when there is a disagreement about the individual educational program? Well, when, when, when I would say tomorrow when that parent goes to drop off their child at school, or, uh, the first thing I would do is go into the school and I'd have something in writing requesting an assistive technology assessment, which starts a timeline that, you know, uh, needs to be done. Within 50 days, they have to do an assistive technology uh, assessment that would uh, basically lay out what are the needs of the child and uh, what technologies are available to best meet the needs of the child. And uh, that that really should uh, bear out what technologies the, the child really needs. So if a parent requests a particular type of evaluation, whether it's for the adaptive computer technology or maybe they're requesting a psychological screening or assessment, then the parent could submit this in writing and the school must act within 50 days? Yes, and it could even be for uh, Braille if a parent thinks that, you know, there's no way that my child's going to be able to read 60-point print for a prolonged period of time, and uh, I don't understand why uh, Braille instruction hasn't been uh, provided, and uh, that could also be another reason for it. Now, what if a parent simply wants to have a discussion with all the members of the team? Are they able to request a meeting with all the team members in the same way and get that in 50 days? Well, actually, you can call an IEP meeting basically at any time. I mean, you 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 could uh, call the school psychologist or the principal or the case carrier and say, you know, I have some concerns and I'd really like to sit down and talk with them, talk to you about them. Uh, I'd like to hold an IEP, and you can hold an IEP at any time. We do have annual IEPs, and then we have triennial IEPs where we reassess the child to to uh, to confirm that. They, they are eligible for the services that they do uh, currently are provided to the student. So you could, you could call an IEP at any time, basically, not just stick to the annual or the triennial IEP. Now, earlier this evening, we were talking to uh, one of the parents, and they basically had stated that their child has very, very poor reading clarity of sight. And what if the child is having that type of difficulty and maybe that they need glasses. Does the school have any obligation to help the child to either get glasses or a magnifier or a visual aid? Well, if, if a child's in special ed, we certainly work with the kids 
on getting magnifiers and, and low vision aids uh, to meet their needs, um, and that would be based upon assessment and it's in their IP. Uh, but uh, I'll be honest with you, um, uh, uh, some students have needed glasses and nurses have uh, gone, have wonderful resources. Nurses are a great resource, by the way. They and are also part of the, a key member of our IEP teams as well that I didn't mention earlier. But they, they, they keep in touch with organizations like Lions Club and, and other uh, agencies that really help a lot with people if they need help or assistance getting glasses and things like that. Yeah, and that's really a great, great point because uh, that's what we find, that for so many of these children, if the families can't afford it, the Lions Club, the Kiwanis Club, yeah. the Rotary Club, there's yeah. organizations such as Change of Life that, that can help. Now, can a parent bring in a child's eye doctor or low-vision optometrist or low-vision ophthalmologist into the IEP if there seems to be some lack of understanding of what the child actually sees? <coughs> Well, a parent can bring anybody that they would like to as, as an advocate to explain things, to to support a parent, absolutely. And in the event that there is such a meeting and both sides don't agree, um, it, a parent just might say, I'm not going to sign this IEP. Uh, what What happens next? Is it stalemate and the child doesn't go to school, or is there any kind of other higher-level hearing available? Sure. Uh, if a parent does not sign an IEP, uh, the current goals, uh, I, the goals that are set, stay in place. Uh, it, it basically, uh, the IEP is still in effect, and uh, services continue at the level that they were uh, at the IEP. And then what a parent can do is find out who uh, the contact person is uh, at the school. Usually at our school, it's the uh, vice principal. Uh, assistant principal, and uh, they would request information. Uh, well, you at every IEP, you get a booklet that explains your rights, your parental rights, and in there it gives the information. But you can ask for what's called a fair hearing, or uh, there's another diff there's a number of different terms that they use for it. But there's some moderate uh, mediation procedures that you can go through, and someone else will they'll they'll come in and look at it with a fresh set of eyes and try and uh, help uh, resolve the, 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 the conflict. Now, I often recommend that a lot of my patients, if they're fifth grade or sixth grade and up, or even sometimes third and fourth graders if they are quite articulate, I encourage them to go to these meetings so that they could explain to the IEP team what are the difficulties that they're having and what things are they not having difficulties? What's your thoughts on having students at the IEP? Absolutely. They all, uh, my students t don't go maybe in kindergarten, first grade, but from second grade on they do. And they, they, they sign their IEPs. One of the things we work on is, is signature writing. Uh, but uh, they, they, they do. Uh, what, what I do is I, I talk to the kids before the IEPs, and I'll, I'll talk to them about their IEP goals that we've set and uh, whether we've met them or not. And ask them, hey, you know, uh, what do you think about this? You know, you may not have learned all of the keystrokes for, you know, uh, loading jaws and unloading it, but you know how to do this and this and this. What do you think is a is a good uh, extension to where we are now? Where what do you think we should be in another year? And uh, and I, what I do is I'll bring up their p present levels at the IEP and I'll ask the students. So 
describe for us what our next goal will be or should be, and I'll clarify during the meeting, you know, but, but they do a really good job of taking ownership of their education that way because they know <clears throat> what the goal was, what the next goal is going to be, and, and they, take, they, they own it by having to present it. It's a great idea. I think that's fantastic that you have them at that young age, and they really become their own advocate, you know, which is really, really important. Now, Keith, what about situations when a child is not legally blind and they are not admitted into a special education plan? You mentioned that they may have a different type of plan. Yeah. It's a 504 plan? Yes. Now, who is involved in that particular case, in other words, of setting the goals or accommodations, um, would that would that be also a teacher for the visually impaired who coordinates this for that student? Yes. Yes. It, it would be similar to an IEP, but it's not as uh, rigorous a, of, a, uh, of, a, of a process. Okay. And, and it can be something simple as, as uh, we have some students that are low vision who really just need somebody to help take notes. And, when it, and they may need preferential seating, or they may need to sit, you know, uh, near um, near the the projector, so that when a teacher is is done presenting the materials on the overhead, they slide the uh, they give the slides to the student to either copy, or we they they would be maybe requesting um, uh, NCR paper or, or or notes copied from another student or something as simple as that. But accommodations that they don't really warrant an IEP. Okay, that's great. So that that's also very, very easy. It seems like it's very easy to discuss those accommodations. Yeah, I, I believe so. Now let's go ahead and change topics a little bit. You know, what I say as it gets back to school, the first thing I try to encourage is that all children will have their vision exam. And if they do have low vision, then we want their doctor to really write a detailed report that describes not only the, di- the diagnosis, but also the child's visual acuity, and to explain what does that mean? You know, what does 2050 or 2200 actually mean? What size letter does a child need to see? What color should it be written in? Where should the materials be positioned? So we recommend that type of a functional vision assessment, and we, we hope that information is then delivered to the teacher now, uh, what's your feelings? I, I try to encourage my students. I tell them, the first day of school, set up a meeting with your teacher and just sit down and talk with your teacher. Let your teacher know what you can and what you can't see. And I always tell them to kind of butter up the teacher and ask the teacher, you know, Mr. Christian, what do I need to be able to get good grades or pass your class? And I tell them that the teacher knows that you're that motivated to do well, the teacher probably will help you out further. Uh, what other kinds of suggestions or things have happened with your students that you said, wow, that's a, a great idea? Well, I think you really hit the nail on the head because I think the teachers really admire the students who who are willing to say, uh, you know what, these are my needs. I'm going to advocate for them, but I want to let you know I'm going to work my hardest to, to make this happen, and what they'll do is they'll gravitate towards those teachers who uh, are, are are accommodating, and 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 all the all the students know who those teachers are because they're the ones who will allow them to come in, like during recess, lunch hour, or or even uh, office hours if it's in uh, in college, whatever. They 
the, the professors will look at the student and go, this is somebody who really wants it. And if they're willing, if they're open to it and they're open to really helping a student out, the students know who they are and they, they, all, the, all the kids will basically network and they, they share who, who are the best teachers. And they will, they will utilize that resource if they really want it. So the kids that, that really are advocates for themselves, they do, they pursue uh, that help that they need and they, they do articulate what their visual needs are as well as test taking uh, needs and, and where they need to sit. And uh, the, the professors and the teachers, they all, they, I, for the most part, I think they, they truly admire that. Although I think in the first, first, uh, the first times they have students with visual impairments, they might be scared and intimidated. But after a while, you know, having a great student who really wants to learn and is willing to go out of his way to, to try and understand what, what's being presented in school, uh, most teachers and professors really respond well to that, I think. Yeah, and I think that's so important because I think that we underestimate the number of people who truly know a person who is visually impaired. I think about myself. I never met a person who was visually impaired until I, I became an eye doctor. All the other years, I never met anybody, and there were so many uh, inaccurate thoughts and understandings about vision impairment that I had. I thought either you see or you're blind, and there was no in-between. Now, what do you recommend uh, that parents or students ask their teachers to do or not to do during the first couple weeks of school? Because I, I know that there's many, many times that my patients, these are kids, they might be seven, eight years of age, and they're suddenly very, very conscious about their vision impairment. They, they at times try to hide it, but they can't hide it because they just can't see certain things. So is there anything that you find to be very helpful? In other words, do you recommend a teacher gets up in front of the class and does a little discussion about vision impairment, or do you think it's helpful if the student, him or herself, goes up there and says, hey, you guys, you know, this is my situation. Uh, I'm an albino, and I, I don't have good vision. What, 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 what do you recommend? Because it's a very difficult situation. I think it, it's truly um, uh, a unique situation for every child because, yeah, I, 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 I have some students who are so outgoing and and their their visual disability is the least i mean is is really just a nuisance and they're very outgoing very um very comfortable in their own skin and uh for those kids uh it's very comfortable to go into the classroom with this the student or students and have the kids i would go up and i'd say before we go up there i'd i'd uh, have the student come in front of the class and we would do a little presentation. Hey, this is so and so. Um, he, you know, he's in your class. And and what I do is I just talk a little bit about um, visual impairments. But then I let him take over and say, Well, show me how you would, you know, uh, how you would uh, do class work. And, and I'd take them to my classroom often, and uh, the, the the whole class would come into my classroom to show them the technology that we have, the uh, the, the braille books, how much space it takes on the shelves. And I'd have them, you know, open up the braille note 
type up something and print it wirelessly, and I'd say, and, and uh, he would say, and the student would say, well, here's my Braille note, and there's the printer, and I'm going to print this, and it's going to come out over there, and he and I'd tell him to tell the the the, the class, and and uh, Mr. Teacher, uh, that printer could be on your desk, so I could turn in my work before anybody else, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And then there are then there are the other kids who are really shy, and um, just a 180 from this student, that other student. And um, it, the, the best thing I've found is that if I go in with the students not there and kind of prep the class a little bit and talk about how, you know, a lot of little things such as, hey, when you're saying hello, say your name so that we learn your voice and your name at the same time. Lots of little things like that to help uh, them become more uh, confident and uh, feel more part of the class and more comfortable and explain to the class what sort of needs the student has because the ones that are really outgoing are really good about explaining, hey, can I grab your elbow? I want to go with you. You know what I mean? Oh. But, now, as so, a teacher, uh, what grade are you teaching? Uh, kindergarten through sixth grade at this time, yeah. And, and what, what's your experience about bullying? Do you find that there's a lot of bullying going on because a child is visually impaired, or do you think it's about the same as with any other type of child? Um. I, there's bullying out there. It's it's out there. Um, I don't know if it's more or not, but but it's 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 on the school campus. And I and I think that um, what what we do about bullying is we we have <laughs> um, we have them visit the Braille jail. Um, that'd be my that'd be my classroom. Um, and what we would do is 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 what we would do is we would try and win their friendship. So we take the bullies, and we would we would um, we would have them. We have these like glasses that they try on, and they they simulate di- simulate different visual con- uh, diseases. And um, we would have them do some work, and, and I'd have them do it side by side with another a blind student or vis- low vision student, and they would work together, and we'd make it to where they got to do some uh, some fun activities um, to try and uh, stimulate some uh, empathy, you know, and really try to get them to understand what it is to have a visual impairment and how maybe challenging it is. And then we'd go play basketball, and we would do things with balls with, um, and we would let them choose, would you like to have a blindfold on so you could get this experience, whatever. We would never force them. They could take it off at any time, but most of the times they really enjoyed it, and the bullies really um, have come around quite a bit. And the ones that we don't win over, we've we've, uh, established, you know, uh, um, some rapport with, and we just, you know, we really don't have too many problems with bullies. Well, you know what I think is also just wonderful for your students uh, is, is the fact that you are legally blind yourself. And I think that as the other students see, hey, look at Mr. Christian. He's got a job. He's a teacher. He's married. He's got kids. He does carpentry. He builds waterfalls. You know, he does all this other cool stuff that I think it helps kids who are visually impaired to not feel as though, you know, that they're, not normal, or that they're they're much less. I, yeah. I just had a I had a, a a patient today. This is a young boy, and he was eight years old. He walks in, and the first thing he says, "My mommy says you're blind." And I said, "Yeah, I'm totally blind." And he says, "You can't see anything." And I said, "No." He said, "Well, how can you be an eye doctor if you're totally blind?" 
And I said, well, I, I went to school, and I, and I studied, and I learned. He says, well, gosh, I could be anything I want then, can't I? You know, and he just put that together himself. So yeah. many times for children to see other people who are visually impaired is, is really helpful. <laughs> Absolutely. And that's why I really like the kids participating in youth programs, such as the Braille Institute, and, 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 and really getting to know some of those people. But also uh, teachers, the, the, teacher, the teachers of the blind and visually impaired, they, they need to bring in those adults such as myself and, and you and, and other successful blind people so that they have a good reference of what is possible if they work hard to be the best they can be and they go to work at doing their best every day, you know. Well, Keith, what would you say is the biggest mistake that parents often make uh, when they have a child who is visually impaired and they take them to school or it's, it's, it's the first few weeks or months at school? What would you say is the biggest mistake that parents make? I think I, I think the biggest mistake is is that um, what I would like to see parents do is really understand what the, their child really needs at school and prep them before they come to school. Such as sit down with a checklist that you make before the end of the year and you and you talk about the technologies that they're using, the strategies that they use their attitude and how they do chores at home and how that will help them later on in life and how building responsibility and accountability. So, so when kids are actually doing their classwork, it's really their work and not their parents' work, and the kids learn how to problem solve and get to know their teachers. And, and a lot of things that you already discussed about talking to the teachers and letting teachers know that, that um, they, need, they need to um, allow the, the child to be in charge of that. But, they can, but, but parents can really prep those kids and, and really help them get a plan, sort of like being a coach. The parent can be more the coach rather than the, the one who does everything for them sometimes. Does that make sense? Yeah, and I, I really agree. I mean, I see... Uh, I've been in the business now for over 20-some-odd years, and I see some children who have low vision, and these are kids that are now 18, 19, 20, and they stay at home, and they collect their SSI Social Security check. And then I have other kids, actually one of your students, who has finished uh, Stanford Law. And when I think about some of these kids, what some of the differences are, is that I used to see some of these parents, and I used to sort of think, my gosh, their child is visually impaired. Help him out. Do that for him. Tie his shoe. Make, you know, carry his books for him. And I found that these parents that allow their child to grow up like a fully sighted child, those kids succeed. And the kids who have been pampered or whether the parents would do the homework for them, these kids are doing nothing. Yeah. So I feel that there's a lot to be said to be that coach as a parent, be that coach, and let the child do what they need to do. Yeah, letting them struggle because, you know, we have to learn how to survive. And if we have somebody saving us all the time, we don't know how to uh, save ourselves. And that's very important. Well, you know, I think that, for me, that's personally one of my gripes about some of the schools out there where they will allow children to have 
I believe it's called inventive spelling. They can spell the word any way they like, and if it makes some sense, that's good. And you see kids, every kid, no matter what, they get a trophy when they play sports. And, yeah. and every child will always, always be moved forward to the next grade. Nobody, nobody gets penalized. And all these types of things that are in many ways good for the self-esteem, but when these kids get out there and they try to get a job after college, yeah. they're going to just really realize the world is not that way. Yeah, that's very true. It's very true. And in and, and our schools, um, uh, yeah, I'm very fortunate because um, what I've done is I've, I've kind of looked at some of the things that I really want my kids to take on. And uh, I used to work in junior high and high school, and, and uh, I really enjoyed that a lot. But I, I realized that when they came to me, they were they were pretty much set in their ways as far as their attitude, their approach, their the way that they view the world. And I really wanted to make a difference. And I, I had an opportunity to go in elementary school. And I think one of the things that I really enjoy what I do is, is having an early uh, influence on kids to help shape what I think is, is you know, an important skill is shaping their attitudes and the way they see the world and their attitude towards I can do it, but I may not know how or I may struggle or whatever. But um, I looked at I looked at some of the things that I, I, I noticed was it was missing, and one of them was just learning how to save money. And um, what I did was I I, I I have a reward system in my school, and I I, mod- I modeled it sort of after the Dr. Bill Foundation. And um, what it is is we have the Barton Bank. My my school is Clara Barton, and what we do is we we uh, <clears throat> the kids earn Barton bucks when they they. Uh, they they are caught doing random acts of kindness whenever they do they do exceptional on tests and when they uh, they turn in their work that is completed and it's basically a, a it's like a, uh, it's sort of like having a job and um, but the reverse is true if they're acting inappropriately they get fined if they they don't do their homework they get fined if they they are unkind they get fined and the bank basically. Uh, pays them, and they get to save money. They 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 can save up money, and um, the uh, the we have an accounting program at school called uh, Money Talks, and each kid has their own bank account. So what they do is they 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 get the money, they make deposits at the end of the week, they they make deposits, and they get to spend the money. If they want to have a, a special recess, or if they want to buy a book a book port plus or something like that. <clears throat> they get to save up for those things. And I think what I did was I taught them over periods of time, so over months and months, they can save up money and learn how to save and buy something big. And that was a real important thing for me to teach them how to, you know, save over time. That's great. <clears throat> That's great because uh, they, they can realize that it's it's helpful at times to wait. You know, they don't need that immediate gratification. Now, you, right. you brought up another topic there, the Bookport Plus, and I want to get to that. What are some of the, you know, pieces of equipment that you really feel that your students really need to have, that parents and teachers and students need to know? Uh, you know, backpacks and uh, pens. and what, what do you think is the most important items in that list for most of your students? Well, I'm a big fan of the Braille note, but uh, I, uh, as far as a note taker for uh, students who read and write in Braille, um, 
but uh, uh, basic skills on a computer, laptop, computer home, either laptop or desktop with a screen reader. And it, it's more a matter of the functions that the technology provides, not necessarily the name brand, like a PacMate versus a Braille Note, but I do like the Braille Note. Um, the, uh, um, the things that I, I stress would be have a good audio player, audio player like a Victor Stream I like. The Bookport Plus is great. But I, I tend to like a lot of the products that VI teachers can get what's called on quota funds, meaning they're, they're, they can get devices from American Printing House for the Blind that are earmarked for quota funds. And you can make these purchases, and uh, they're, they're uh, great devices such as the Bookport Plus. The, uh, and it's, it's like a Victor Stream, um, but it's, it's available at no cost to uh, the, the school district. They're with it's on quota funds, and they have. Um, um, let's see what else. Well, Keith, with that, you know, getting back to that with the quota funds. Yeah. Now, the Bookport Plus, for some of you listeners who aren't familiar with it, it's about the size of a cell phone, and students could download all sorts of different books yeah. on there, yeah. all yeah. sorts of music. They could yeah. use it to record interviews and record lectures. But with this quota fund, how does that mean? Let's say you have ten students in your school who are partially sighted or low vision or blind. Yeah. Does that mean that each one is entitled to order one through the quota plan and get it for free? No, it wouldn't be entitled. It would be more a matter of we would have, uh, we, we determine a need. What I do is, the, these are, using adaptive technology is a skill that, that I think all of our students need to have. And it's, in some of our kids it wouldn't be appropriate for who would damage the device and whatever. But for the kids who it's appropriate for, absolutely, we would use, we would use quota funds to purchase uh, devices like that uh, as it was uh, deemed uh, appropriate. And for most of our students, it is. Uh, there, it, you mentioned just a couple things. You can download Bookshare books on it, NLS books. Um, it plays audio, DAISY, and, and uh, Braille files. And it, and it has wireless now. It's amazing. And that's just one little device that used to take up many devices before. So for some of our parents or students who are listening this evening, if they were hoping that they had something that they could listen to, Gone with the Wind, or oh. some of their textbooks on it, would they be able to ask their VI teacher to see if that would be possible to order a Bookport Plus through the quota plan? Absolutely. Oh, that is great. Well, you know, other things that I tell the students if they are partially sighted, you know, I think having a great, good-sized, strong backpack is good with more pockets. I think that for a lot of them, a talking calculator or a large print calculator is good. Having the right types of pens and markers, 2020 pens, even uh, the master lock. Uh, there's a great master lock that there's no numbers, and you don't have to have a key, but there's a little lever or a button on the front and you could set a combination. So it might be up, down, right, right, left, and that will open your lock. So it's pretty cool they like that. I'll have you to know. look into that. They also have some push-button ones that are like, that are um, in Braille. That what was oh. really kind of neat was is that you could actually uh, Braille put a Braille label on the actual lock of the combination, and it <laughs> <laughs> wouldn't be a problem. Yeah. Now, where where can a lot of the students and parents look for a lot of this? You had mentioned the American Printing House. Uh, is is that one of the the leading places that parents and teachers and students could look for products sure. for back to school? Yeah. Yes. And I'll, there's a, some others like the Indep Independent Living Aids. 
Um, the uh, another great one is the uh, Lighthouse for the Blind. Um, there's a number of great great places, but I'll tell you, a lot of the good information is also disseminated through a lot of listservs on the internet where discussion groups uh, take place. And and uh, what you'll find is that uh, there's a lot of people out there in similar situations who come up with real creative ways of solving problems or or, or learning about new products and and uh, sharing them, such as going to you know uh, uh, ACB and NFB conferences and. And uh, Do you happen to know um, uh, some of these, whether it's a web address that parents or students might be able to go on? I know that the National Federation of the Blind, they have a parents group, so parents could go to www.nfb.org and search for the link for the parents group. Do you know of any others? Uh, that's a great place to go because there there are so many just on that one site. Um, you know, if you if you just do a Google search for uh, blind and uh, iPad, blind uh, Macintosh, Mac, Apple, blind Apple, blind uh, musician recording software, it's amazing the number of lists and, and uh, forums that are available for you to. To subscribe to and, and just read the content that's up on the web pages. And another one that's really good, I think, is, is checking out Airs LA and um, and uh, uh, BlindCoolTech.com or a couple other great places to go and check out. Yeah, that's great. Well, let me go ahead and run down some of these. I got my computer on here, and one of the websites that's great is the American Council of the Blind, and that's www.acb. AmericanCouncilBlind.org, and the other we did say was the NFB.org. There's also the APH for the American Printing House.org, and the American Federation for the Blind AFB.org, and I think you mentioned the IndependentLivingAids.com. I believe that's www.ila.com and uh, this podcast is actually being recorded by Mr. Dick Burden and Airs LA there's just tons and tons of podcasts and interviews and all the latest information on uh, technology uh, all that's there on Airs LA at www.airs that's A-I-R-S L-A.org and uh uh, on Saturdays, I do a little thing that's called student space, so it's really intended for students to listen to. Um, but, Keith, this has really been very, very helpful information, and if any of our listeners ever have questions, maybe some of the students have questions they want, you know, they got a problem or they want to get your advice or parents want to ask, do um, you feel comfortable in giving an email address or anything so they can send you a question? It's Keith Christian, one word, K-E-I-T-H-C-H-R-I-S-T-I-A-N at roadrunner.com. Okay, Keith Christian, all one word, at roadrunner.com. Yeah. Okay, Keith, do you have time for a few questions from uh, some of our listeners? Sure. sure. Yeah. Uh, let's go ahead and unmute your phone by pressing star and then six, and that will unmute your phone. And uh, we also have... Uh, uh, some other other people online, and if you'd like to also contribute any comments, uh, uh, that that would be great, Reba. 
Ah, yes. Is that, do you have a question there? Uh, no, I, I heard my name, um, but I, I'm not a mother. <laughs> this is Reba. Sorry. Yes, 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 Reba. Yes, uh, I know that you're on the board of the CCLVI, and I was just offering if you have any other suggestions for our students or their parents, um, please feel free to chime in and uh, offer any other suggestions that you feel is very important for students and parents to know right now. Oh, um, certainly. I have to say I, I feel like there's a lot more available for students with low vision since I was a child, so I've, I've been wowed over here, and I'm, I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, things have really come a long ways, and I, I always say, you know, this is by far the best time in the history of mankind to be visually impaired. Uh, we're opening up to questions. Greg, did you have any questions? Uh, when I was listening to you earlier I, uh, about the um, IEP meetings, my wife and I did something very interesting with our eight-year-old son with aniridia, which is we're still trying to figure out. We uh, called a monthly umbrella IEP meeting with the entire team so we can all discover what he needed uh, throughout the school year. And you guys developed that idea of an a umbrella IEP? Because I've never heard of that. It was... The issue of um, all of us were kind of befuddled or confused as to what he would really need. And uh, we figured the best way to do it, instead of uh, meeting once a year, about a IEP meeting was monthly, get the group together and talk about on an informal, semi-formal basis what is and is not working and amend the IEP as needed. Yeah, that's great. Well, you know, uh, what, what I could also share with you, we, we do see that for many, many children with aniridia, we often find that some of the difficulties that they have is with being able to see the reading and writing materials. And uh, low vision doctors can often prescribe bifocal reading glasses that will magnify the print by using bold pencils. One of the pencils that works pretty well is called the Sumo pencil and it has a one millimeter thick lead so it, it's much easier for them to see. Also uh, the bold line paper is very helpful and it's also very helpful if they would be willing to change his position such that his back faces windows and doors. Uh, with aniridia glare is a major problem. Many students have really uh, been very very grateful when the school has changed the white dry erase board to a gray dry erase board, or other times we might even just prescribe tinted glasses for the students in the classroom. Uh, on the computers, we can often recommend that they change the color of the background. So if it's a blue background with white letters or yellow letters, it's a lot easier on their eyes. So those are some of the things that you might share with the IEP team. And another thing that could be helpful is if you set up sort of a like a Google group, or it could even be a Facebook if people want to, but just a way that each day at any time anybody could put in a comment to say, wow, you know, it really was helpful when we changed the computer to a blue background, or if we if we use this particular type of font style instead. So th those are things that, that might be helpful as well. That's great. Thank you. <laughs> Does anybody else have any other questions out there or comments? 
this is Reba. I have uh, a recommendation to the parents. Um, Thank you. Great. Okay. Um, and this isn't a, you have to go out and buy anything. This is this is um, just a recommendation. Um, as I mentioned when I started here, I am a graduate student. I'm at finishing my practicum in social work at the University of Pittsburgh, and I'm actually doing some disability advocacy and advisory development um, on campus and working with the Office of Disability Support here. And as I listened to this call here, and I've heard um, it was emphasized that, you know, empower the student to be able to speak to their her needs in the classroom, and certainly in the K-12 um, setting, that's important, but is, you're really giving your child a tool up onto the collegiate level because the collegiate level is a completely different ballgame if you're work, trying to get services through disability resources or trying to get accommodations. Um, a lot of them, at least right now, and, and by the time your, your, uh, your little boy is in college, it might be different, but a lot of them have gone to a one-size-fits-all model. Um, and I can't tell you how many discussions I've had with um, disability resource offices about working, saying, um, no, I prefer to um, take my multiple-choice test with a CCTV. I don't want it scanned in. I don't need um, all electronic at this point. So definitely, you know, definitely teach that value of self-advocacy to your, your child because you're going to need it. That's great. Yeah, that's really great. And it also relates with, you know, each state, when we see kids who have graduated from high school, uh, they might become clients of the Department of Rehabilitation. Now, the Department of Rehabilitation often helps students to receive glasses and magnifiers and low-vision aids and computers and CCTVs and Braille notes, all of this. But the same thing holds true that the student often has to be an advocate for herself or himself with the Department of Rehabilitation. They may say, you don't need any of this. And I've seen students who have fought the Department of Rehabilitation and have uh, received what they really needed. So I think that's a really great thing. Let's see, does anybody else have one final question? We're about uh, out of time, but does anybody else have one more question? Amy? Um, I was interested in knowing a little bit more about the Bookport Plus. Um, we recently got our son um, into the audio books for the blind, and he's really soared knowing that that's a choice for him. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> well, let me just give you a couple of different comments about that. Uh, I am a owner of the Bookport Plus, and also there's another device called the Victor Reader Stream. But um, personally, I prefer the Bookport Plus because of the fact that when you download books, you can send it to your Bookport Plus easier. And uh, the, the Bookport Plus, again, looks like a, about the size of an iPhone, and you could store literally thousands of books in there. You could make recordings if there's an important phrase or a date in that book you're reading. Uh, your son, he could download all kinds of music and listen to music. He can make different types of uh, recordings. He could do tricks and record you when you're having a private conversation. Or he could, <laughs> <laughs> he could also download the podcast from Airs LA. 
Yeah. For example, Keith had mentioned a great way to learn about technology is through Blind Cool Tech. This is a podcast, and uh, Larry Scuchon, he puts this on, and we have the link to this on Airs LA. So all of these podcasts, they could be downloaded to his little Bookport Plus wirelessly, and so that's something that's great. Another thing that's also easy makes downloading books to your computer from the National Library Service. There is a software program from Adaptive Voice. You could go to www.adaptivevoice.com. And this is called C-Desk, the letter C, Desk, for Books. And what this does, it just it's, it's like a $30 program, but it makes it much, much easier to search for books from the National Library of Congress, and these digital books will then come to your computer. You could also search for books from bookshare.org, and they come into your computer. And then you could just put them on this little little uh, cell phone-sized device and read it. So like Keith was saying, the Bookport Plus may be available at no charge through the quota uh, program. So you might want to ask the teacher for the visually impaired for that. But uh, it's a great device. That's okay. great. Thank you very much. Okay. So I uh, want to thank you again, Keith, and all of you for listening in. Now, this podcast is going to be available on the Airs LA website at www.airsla.org. And in the search box, you could just type in CCLVI uh, for the Council of Citizens with Low Vision International. Okay? And it's also going to be on the CCLVI webpage at www.cclvi.org. Reba, I also want to thank you for... Uh, your input on this discussion, and uh, we hope that you tune in next month when we have another uh, program of Let's Talk. So for Airs LA and for CCLVI, this is Dr. Bill Takeshta. Thank you, everybody. Good night.